Good morning. We are here today to discuss Parshas Teruma. The title for today's year is The Power of Designation. This month, the month of Adar 1, is sponsored by Alex and Danielle Galski and family in memory of beloved grandparents, Abraham, Dela, Guillermo, and Dora, Dora, and also in loving memory of Uncle Alberto Galski. Um, Alex and Danielle are actually close friends of my family and of the yeshiva. It's been a privilege to get to know their entire family. I also merited to attend uh, one of the special Torah lunches that his uncle Alberto Galski uh, used to put on in Aventura, and he was very committed to the spreading of Torah. His neshama, as well as, of course, beloved grandparents, also their neshamas should certainly have an aliyah, and Alex and Danielle should continue to be role models of excellence um, in the Arab community and uh, continuing the great work in spreading Torah. Uh, Danielle actually is the main uh, person for Hatzalah here in South Florida, United Hatzalah. She's uh, the main, uh, main person behind the events and all the good work that they're doing here. So we thank them for their sponsorship and join them in commemorating the passing of all their relatives and that their neshamos of those people, those relatives should have an aliyah. So most of us Jews today are yearning for an ultimate salvation from all our suffering and tribulations. Nonetheless, despite all this pain that is ongoing, all the uncertainty, all the difficulty, amidst all of our current national crises and challenges, there is a tremendous undercurrent of courage, resolute, commitment, comfort, and pride. There is emerging actually a deep awakening of the true identity of the Jew within Jewry, and that that identity is built on Torah wisdom and the magical and miraculous and unbelievable relevance of the Torah, and all of this being intertwined with the profound experience of Hashem and seeking a relationship with him. I'm sure by now, probably most of you have seen that uh, clip that's gone around, uh, been sent around uh, from one of the members of the Knesset um, describing how she personally was robbed of the knowledge of her own identity, her purpose of being in this world, and the unbelievable diamond that is the jewel that is the Torah. So there is much good despite all the bad that we as a nation are experiencing. Now, in today's Parsha, we will learn the true origins of this matrix, which I'm describing as our relationship with the Torah and Hashem and the identity of the Jew. We will also learn how to cultivate and experience this formula and insert it, implement it, into our daily lives and learn to yield from it ceaseless inspiration and comfort. Now, one of the most recognized objects of the Jewish people throughout the millennia is what we call the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant or the Aron Habris in our parsha is really called the Aron, which means the Ark, and it was a structure that was originally designed by Moshe uh, through the commandment of Hashem, built uh, primarily according to some commentaries by Bitsalel, and it was a gold casing 
that was underneath a wooden acacia or cedar wood box with another gold casing on top of it. So there was like two shelves of gold that perfectly fitted over this gold casing. And then into that aron, into that ark was inserted the tablets. Now a little bit more information about that is that there were also the broken tablets that were also put in there. So the first broken pieces of the tablets, most opinions hold, were put into the ark. Plus the second tablets, the ones that actually came to fruition and were extant, they were put into that box. And then there's an argument in the Talmud about the Torah scroll itself, especially by the end of Moshe's life, when Moshe gives over an entire written Torah exactly as we have it today, that was also either put into the Ark itself or on a plank that protruded from the side of the Ark. That's an argument in the Talmud exactly where the Torah scroll was placed. But all agree that Torah is put into the Ark and we have these different aspects of the Torah, the tablets and the Torah scroll. On top of the Ark was a golden cover made out of solid gold and in fact started off as a very large piece of gold from within it was chiseled the images of the kiruvim the cherubs which is basically two faces that look like children with a nondescript body form plus wings protruding out from these cherubs the faces of the cherubs faced the ark. They, they tilted towards each other and downwards, and their wings were spread hovering as a covering to the ark. That's a description of the ark. Now, as I mentioned, this is by far one of the most recognized objects of the Jewish people throughout the millennia and typically called the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so this Ark of the Covenant today, we don't have, we don't know where it is, as a very interesting aside, my brother has a fascinating theory of perhaps identifying pretty much the exact location of where it is today. My brother Rabbi Yitzchak has a very interesting uh, developed uh, idea and presentation on this. For those of you who want to reach out to him, uh, perhaps you can respond to your Shabbat Shalom weekly and ask him about it. He might be giving a class on it this evening. In any event, Today, we recognize the significance of the Ark, and indeed we have throughout our exile, by creating the Ark that we store our Torah scroll inside our shul or inside our yeshiva in something that we too call an Aron, and it is the centerpiece of every single synagogue and has been throughout all the years of the Jewish people since the original Ark in the Holy of Holies, in both the Tabernacle, the Mishkan, and then ultimately in the Beis Hamikdash. And indeed, we know that whenever today, whenever we are in synagogue and the Ark is opened, the congregation is supposed to rise to a standing position as a sign of respect. So what exactly are we doing when we open the Ark? What's really the difference between the Ark being opened and the Ark not being opened? Why does opening the Ark command such reverence. The Torah is there whether the ark is closed or whether the ark is open. And why is it the centerpiece of our prayer service? Why are most our why are our most solemn communal prayers recited in front of the opened ark? As we know, the Kol Nitre open ark. All of the 
repetition of the Chaz and Shmona Esrays, which really represent the communal prayer, is in front of an open ark, the Vina Malkinu, in front of an open ark. So we know that this holds tremendous significance for us. And the question is why? How do we understand all of this? And what, how do we see its significance based in on our parsha, which is the first place that discusses both the construction of the ark and putting the tablets and the Torah into the ark? Now, as a start, let's just mention that in addition to what we call the luchos, the title being the luchos, the tablets, very often the luchos are called the luchos ha'edus, which means the tablets of the testimony, and sometimes just generically called the edus, which is the testimony. And in fact, in our parsha, when the Torah describes putting the Torah or the tablets into the ark, it says to put to the ark the edus. So as an example, uh, the first time it appears, chapter 25, sentence 16, it says, you shall place to the ark the edus. Now, what does it mean, the testimony? So we're just, as a start, going to mention what Rashi says. Rashi to that sentence explains that the Torah, which is a little bit murky in Rashi, does Rashi mean the Torah scroll eventually? Does he mean the tablets? So for our purposes today, we're just going to talk about both. The Torah and the tablets which is a testimony between me and you Jewish people that I have ordained the commandments written in it. So what do we mean, the tablets of the testimony? What is it that we're inserting into the ark? A set of stone tablets upon which are the Ten Commandments and the Torah, which serve to testify that I have ordained the laws that are in it. That obviously needs some explanation. What exactly is the testimony? I mean, we have the Torah. Why do we need the tablets, right? It says in the Torah, there was Harsina, I should give us the Torah. Why do we need the tablets? Why does it need to be in the Ark? So it obviously needs a lot of explanation. Okay. Now, let me just kind of do a, a cursory um, summary of chapter 25 uh, from sentence 1 to 22, just so that you get the flavor of the context. Uh, we all know how important context is nowadays, right? So you get important, you know, uh, background on what it is that the Torah is talking about. The Torah starts by saying that the Jewish people should take a donation or a portion to Hashem. The Torah lists the materials that should be taken, gold, silver, copper, different types of materials such as wool and dyed animal skins of various types, precious gems, oil for, for, um, for lighting, plus uh, spices for, for the anointing oil and for the, um, the actual incense offerings. Okay, and if you make the sanctuary, I will dwell among you. Do everything that I'm commanding to you to do. And then the Torah begins with the specifics of constructing the ark. And it mentions dimensions of the ark. And it also mentions that poles need to be inserted into the ark and that those poles should never leave the ark. Then it says, as we mentioned, that you should put into the ark, the edus, right? The, these tablets and Torah, which we've been discussing. And then the Torah says to make a covering for the ark. It gives us the dimensions of the covering. Then it describes these magnificent cherubs that are chiseled from the same block of gold as the covering for the ark. And we sort of described it already with the faces and the wings hovering over the ark, looking to each other, looking towards the cover, looking downwards towards the cover. 
And that then the Torah says, put the cover on top of the ark, and to the ark you should put in the edus, which is the second time that the Torah says that, which we're going to discuss along with Rashi's comments to that sentence. And it says, this is the place where I will be met by you, and I will speak with you from upon this covering, from between these two cherubs that are on top of the Ark of the Edus, everything that I'm commanding you to the Jewish people. So that is the summary of all the sentences. So basically, construct the Ark, the cherubs, put in the tablets or the Torah. Now, Rashi has a question. And this Rashi comes on chap in chapter 25, sentence 21. And Rashi says, look, the Torah says twice to put the tablets or the edus, which is the Torah, the tablets, into the ark. It says Rashi, I don't know why it says it twice. Rashi says, I don't know why. That's how he starts. And then he says, perhaps you can say as an answer, even though he starts off by saying, I don't know. He says, perhaps you can say that the reason the Torah is repeating it is because the Torah is emphasizing the following point. You need to put the tablets into the ark before you put the cover onto the ark. Sounds like Rashi is telling us that the Torah is dealing with uh, the people from Helm. Anybody ever remember the Helm people, right? Like, like how would you exactly put the tablets into the ark if the cover, which is solid gold and fits perfectly onto the ark, what are you supposed to do? Somehow magically crush through the, the cherubs and the cover and get the tablets or the Torah into the ark? That seems to be complete and utter bunk and nonsense. And what's even a little more astonishing is that Raja doesn't bother explaining anything further. He literally says that perhaps the reason the Torah repeats this command is in order to tell us that we need to first put in the tablets Torah, and then cover the ark. It seems bizarre. Okay, so that's the way of the background. Now we're going to repeat that question in a moment. And here are our three questions that we're going to be dealing with today. First of all, in light of idolatry being an anathema, meaning a hated thing to Hashem, how is it possible to understand the requirement to construct golden cherubs in the Holy of Holies? That's beyond bizarre. It's literally unimaginable. In the holiest of all places, we have golden images that look like the faces of children with wings. Literally what we would have thought is every single thing against the prohibitions that are repeated umpteen times in the Torah to not construct idols. And all the more so not to have it not only in the Holy of Holies, but as part and parcel of this most edified and holy object of all, the Ark of the Covenant. That's question number one. How is it possible to understand the golden cherubs in the Holy of Holies? Question number two is the question I mentioned a moment ago, as per Rashi, that the repetition of the verses teaches us that first the Torah tablets, Torah, i.e., and tablets must be placed in the Ark before the Kaporis is put on the cover uh, on put before the kaporis is put on to cover the ark, how could it be otherwise? And question number three, what in fact is the meaning of the tablets of testimony? What exactly is being testified? We learned that Rashi says that it's I that commanded you the Torah that's contained therein. It's hard to understand why we need that testimony that's written explicitly in the Torah. How can we make more sense out of that? 
And, you know, just in general, why is this kind of ongoing testimony necessary? So I'd like to point out what I think is a rather simple observation, but I think it's incredible in how we sort of gloss over it when we read the Torah and don't really appreciate its incredible significance. Just in these last few weeks, we have discussed twice the revelation of Mount Sinai and in Parashat Sisro, the uttering of the Ten Commandments, Parashat Mishpatim, we have other details that are mentioned. And right here we have Tirum. Now what's really interesting, um, we're just gonna go simple over here for a minute. We're gonna say that according to Rashi, Parashat Tiruma is out of order. And really the tablets have not been discussed yet to this point in the Torah. But here the Torah is telling us about the Edus that you're gonna put into the Ark but we've had no mention of Moshe receiving tablets uh, or breaking tablets or constructing the second tablets. And we're not going to get that information until Parshish Kisisa. So now we're doing Teruma. Next week is the Tzavah. And Parshish Kisisa, we find out about these tablets. So it's rather interesting, as Rashi says, that it's out of order, that we're already talking about the Edus before we've ever mentioned the Luchos actually being written and given. Fine. But if we look simply at what the Torah does, the Torah teaches us about the Mishkan kind of immediately after Mount Sinai with all the social justice laws mentioned in between. So what I'd like to point out is that at the very end of Parashas Yisro, you have an astonishing statement, which again, we kind of all gloss over it without realizing its significance. At the end of Parashas Yisro, the Jewish people have been blown away uh, literally according to the Midrash and figuratively, certainly according to the sentences, says the people trembled and they stood from a distance and they said to Moshe, listen, Moshe, you speak with us. God should not speak with us lest we will die. Now we discussed some of these sentences, but here's a very interesting point. What makes the Jewish people think that Hashem is going to communicate with them further? Hashem came, he spoke the Ten Commandments, they were blown away. Why should they assume that God is going to continue to speak to them, that they are now asking, listen, Moshe, from this point forward, you speak to Hashem and you tell us what Hashem said. Obviously, the Torah is telling us an amazing fact. The Jewish people understand that Hashem speaking the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai to them directly means that Hashem is establishing a permanent communication with the Jewish people that will be ongoing. That is what established at Har Sinai when Hashem appeared and spoke directly to us. In other words, very simply put, in order to understand that, you can't have a relationship without communication. If Hashem is appearing and doing it in such a fashion that it's directly with us from the outset, it means that Hashem wants a permanent communication with the Jewish people. And the people know that to be true. And that's why immediately after that, they say, listen, wait a second. We get it. We need to be in an ongoing communication relationship with Hashem. We just can't handle it directly. So Hashem, you have this prophet called Moshe Rabbeinu. We heard you speak with him. We know he's the real deal. Speak to Moshe and then tell us. And by the way, this concept is ratified throughout the Torah. The whole notion 
of ongoing prophecy in the Jewish nation is that it starts with Moshe. And then as the Torah itself says, in the future, I will raise from among you a prophet like Moshe. Exactly what the Torah says. Because there will always be ongoing communication between Hashem and the Jewish people. Now, maybe at the very end, we'll talk about what about when we don't have, you know, the prophets of note and the ones that are proven in the way that the earlier prophets were. Good. But the whole point of the Mount Sinai experience was not for a one-time event. The whole point is to establish a permanent relationship of communication with the Jewish people, because without that, it's not the genuine relationship that Hashem is choosing to have with us and that Hashem started at Harsina. Now, the Torah ultimately identifies that the place of this ongoing communication is the Holy Ark, specifically from between these two cherubs, where Hashem will talk to Moshe. This is further described in several other places in the Torah as well. And it's also very clearly brought in the early sources that all future prophecy to all prophets emanate from the Holy Ark. That's the place from which communication originates from Hashem to the prophets. So therefore, the testimony of the Torah, of the tablets, is that Hashem is guaranteeing his commitment that the communication that started at Mahar Sinai is an ongoing reality throughout all the generations that Hashem will continue to communicate with his people. And of course, the reaction of the Jews that says, no, no, we can't handle it, let it be Moshe, establishes that certain people within the Jewish people will be the ones to have a more direct communication and will be the vehicles for which Hashem communicates to the other people, which by the way, the real truth of prophecy among the Jewish people is that myriad Jews have had prophecy. And even though we only know about 40 or 50 or you know maybe some more, but the number that the, that the Talmud gives us is around 50, both male and female prophets, that's only in terms of prophecy that was given by Hashem to a person to then communicate to other people. But many other people have had their own direct communication with Hashem without a doubt, meaning in the scores, in the tens of thousands, or maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe even more. So the point is that this communication starts with Har Sinai, and the Luchos and the Torah serve as a testimony that God is talking to us. He spoke to us at Mount Sinai. He spoke the Ten Commandments to us. He's continuing to speak to us, whether it's through the words of the Torah itself, or it's through the words of the prophecies that come, or it's through the communication that we get when we dive into Hashem, where we direct all of our thoughts and prayers directly to Hashem, and He responds to us in a communication fashion, which I'm going to elaborate on in one second. All of this was guaranteed to happen based on the fact that Hashem spoke the Ten Commandments to us at Har Sinai, <clears throat> and therefore we need to have this ongoing testimony that we should know that God is seeking communication with us and that he's always communicating with us. 
whether it's the bas kol that the Torah, that the Talmud talks about in many places, that there are emanating voices from heaven, or even more to the point, which uh, Rabbi Kaplan actually speaks about very clearly in his handbook of the Jewish thoughts. If anybody wants sources on that, maybe I'll put it in the transcript. He tells us that God sometimes plants ideas into our minds, and that's his way of communicating with us. So to all people, and I've heard this question hundreds and thousands of times, what do you mean davening is communication to Hashem? That's one-way communication. That's everybody's objection. You think you come up with great ideas all by yourself? Really, people? You think you're not being helped in your thinking by Hashem that just comes out of the greatness of your brain and your mind? We have explicit sources in the Midrash, and I'm telling you, Rabbi Kaplan talks about it very, very clearly and well, very often, when ideas pop into a person's mind, it is a way of Hashem communicating with us. And don't tell me that this doesn't happen to you. I just had a conversation with my wife a week ago on Shabbos where she really, really wanted to tell me three things. She tells me the first thing and I say, listen, I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to tell you a second thing. And then as soon as I tell it to her, she shows me a piece of paper where the second thing that I told her, she had written down to tell me. We had not talked about it maybe ever or maybe in passing more than a couple, uh, like a year ago or two ago. It's obvious that sometimes we get these ideas put into our brains because that is a way of communicating with Hashem. And the more we dive in, the more we direct our hearts and our thoughts and our prayers to the Holy of Holies, which is this place of communication, which is where we're supposed to direct the communication, the more it actually happens. But now listen to how Rashi teaches us and is explaining to us that that's the idea of putting the tablets into the ark. What Rashi is telling us is, of course, we cannot put the tablets into the ark when the cover is on, obviously. But the question is, are the tablets a part of the construction of the ark, or do we build an ark, and then we have its actual um, box with the cover as the object that it's supposed to be, so we can build an ark, build the cover with the chairs, put it on? Or is it not possible to have an ark without the tablets? Says Rashi, of course you can't put the tablets in through the cover of the ark. But what you have to understand is that if you do not put the tablets in first, you're missing a basic component and structural piece of the ark. Because the ark is not just a representation of the throne of Hashem, the place where Hashem rests, which by the way, Ramban says explicitly over here on this very sentence and on this Rashi, Hashem, the, 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 it's actually the place where from where Hashem will communicate. And that is what the tablets and the Torah represents, that this is not just the place where, so to speak, Hashem is, this is the place of where Hashem talks to us. That is part and parcel of the structure of the Ark. And therefore, says Rashi, you need to put the tablets in first because you need to know what you're doing. But more importantly, I think what Rashi is really telling us, and with this he disagrees with Nachmanides, if you don't think of it that way, if you don't plan it that way, and if you don't design it that way, it will not be that way. And that is the power of designation. It's not enough that, hey, you have the tablets in the ark, 
and you can cover it. Then you can put the, the, the you know, take off the cover and then put in uh, the tablets afterwards. No, no, no. You have to know from the beginning what you're doing. You have to know not only the design structure plan and the components that need to be in there, you need to know the purpose and you need to build it with that purpose in mind. And you need to designate it that way or else it will not be that way. And that's the power of human designation. Let me give you a simple example. Very interesting story I heard this week is that, uh, you know, some people I think still watch the Super Bowl. Okay, it's a free country so far, I guess. And some people find that a good experience, wonderful. So a woman related to me that she went to watch the Super Bowl with her family and about halfway into it, she was actually very unhappy. And I said to her like, okay, why were you unhappy? She said, you know, cause I don't care about football. I went to be there to share the joy of my children that were enjoying this. And I wanted to bond with my children over this. I remember how my father used to do our hobbies or activities with us and watch them with us. And that gave me so much joy. I wanted to do that for my children, but I realized halfway through that that wasn't happening. So I asked her, um, did anybody know that that was your intention or your plan? And she said, no. I said, it's not enough to think about it. You have to plan it and you have to design it to be that way. Let's do another example. Let's call it dinner at home. If dinner is a place where we eat and sometimes grunt at each other or maybe in passing ask each other about our day, that's one experience. But if dinner is the place where we're choosing to share, to talk about meaningful things and to talk about our day in meaningful ways, it's a whole different dinner experience. But it doesn't just happen because, hey, we're sitting around. It happens because that's the thinking, that's the planning, and that's the design implementation. And that's what Rashi is telling us here by the Luchos that, and the Torah that is so critical. We cannot walk into Shul, as an example today, with the idea that this is simply where we ask Hashem for things. It's the place where Hashem is talking to us we have to understand that when we open the ark, it's a reminder. We see the Torah in it. We see the testimony of the fact that Hashem is communicating with us, that he wants this ongoing relationship to be a relationship not only where we follow instructions, but where he talks to us. That's why our most meaningful prayers and our most solemn communal prayers, which we'll elaborate on in a second, are done in front of an open ark got to be open so we understand clearly what it is. And it's also that the shul is a place hopefully of learning or the yeshiva is also hopefully a place of davening because the matrix is the Jewish people, the Torah, and Hashem. In the words of the Tikkune Zohar, Yisrael ve'oraisa v'kudusha v'richu chad. Hashem, or in the order in the Zohar, the Jewish people and the Torah and Hashem are one. We are a unit. So the Ark represents that unit, which is the Hashem resting on the Ark, the Torah that is in it, and the Jewish people are represented by the two cherubs, as the Talmud and Baba Basra tells us, that these two cherubs are like two students taking leave of their teacher, which means that they're learning with each other, 
They're learning from Hashem. They're taking the communication and the learning that they get from Hashem and they're learning it together and they're bonding together, which is, of course, as most of us know, when the Jewish people got along with one another, the cherubs were facing each other. And when they did not, the cherubs turned magically and faced away from one another. But really the message behind that is, we will not have communication with Hashem if we are not facing and communicating with each other. It's not going to work. That's the place where we're communicating with Hashem. Why are we talking about if the Jewish people are getting along? The answer is because we don't get the prophecy. We don't get the help from Hashem unless we are working together to be unified in that relationship with Hashem. That's the only way we get communication with Hashem. Forget about that. It's important to get along. For sure, that's true. But that's also the only way that we really have existentially, practically implemented into our lives the proper communication from Hashem. That's all part and parcel of understanding that the Torah, which represents our communication with Hashem, is being studied by the cherubs that cover the Torah, and that this is the place from which Hashem will communicate from between the two cherubs. That's what the Torah says. The communication comes above the ark, which is on the testimony, from between the two cherubs. That's the only way to have proper ongoing communication with Hashem. So if we want to implement this in our lives, we need to recognize one very simple fact. Deepening and making more profound our communication with each other enables us to have a better communication with Hashem. So when you work on your Shabbos table, on your Pesach Seder, on your dinner table, on your daily interactions, both with your family members and with your fellow community members, you have to deepen the communication with each other. That's when Hashem talks to us. And here, let me give you the ultimate proof. After the sin of the spies, Rashi says that Hashem no longer communicated with Moshe the same way because of the sin of the spies. For 38 years, Hashem did not have the same kind of communication with Moshe because of the sin of the spies. Because the whole point of talking to Moshe here between the two cherubs is as a means of communicating with the Jewish people. Okay, you can tell me whatever you want. Moshe was the greatest uh, prophet that ever lived. Hashem was still not communicating with him because it's all about communicating with the Jewish people. That's why Hashem communicates with the prophet. And so that's really what Rashi is telling us over here is that the testimony is the interest that Hashem has in having this profound communication with us as Jewish people. Hashem accepted the request of the Jewish people that we needed to be uh, readying ourselves more and that Hashem would talk to Moshe and Moshe would convey to us his messaging. But ultimately, it's really all about communicating with the Jewish people. So the answers uh, to our questions are that even though idolatry is obviously horrendous, the message of the cherubs is the reality of the Jewish people. It's not an image in the classic sense to recognize the greatness, let's say, of even a man or a human being, which is also, of course, a form of idolatry. But recognizing that the Jewish people as a whole are the only way to have a genuine relationship of communication with Hashem it's not idolatry. It's exactly what happened at Mount Sinai. We were unified, and that's when Hashem communicated to us. And if we don't understand that that, in fact, is necessary 
for the proper communication with Hashem, and we are missing the boat on having this dynamic and intimate relationship with Hashem. And that's why Rashi tells us we have to have that intention that when we're putting the tablets into the ark, it's to signify that this is not only a place where Hashem is, it's a place where we communicate with Hashem, but it's built on the idea that we're working with each other to have that communication with one another and the Torah study with one another and then a communication with Hashem. And that's the testimony. The testimony is that this is the ongoing reminder that this relationship with Hashem is all about an ongoing communication with him that starts with prophecy with Moshe, continues with the prophets of the later generations, continues even today with forms of, you know, much lesser forms of inspiration that come to us uh, through the way that we think about things and the way that Hashem enhances us uh, through his help uh, for us. That is also Hashem's ways of communicating with us. Questions or comments? Yes, Mrs. Kanoff. I don't mean to sound um, facetious when I ask this question, but if you if you're in the middle of davening and all of a sudden this great unrelated idea comes to you, can you now say, hey, thank you for the great idea. However, I'm pretty sure I'm going to forget it. Can I now write it down and say, thank you for the great idea. And it's not have sick hadas. Um, I, I think, yes, if you're convinced that it's what Hashem wants you to think. Okay, thank you. I would say yes. Okay, good to know. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, there are people that uh, that look, um, you know, at, at reminders of things. I actually um, very much recommend having the top three things that we want in a person's pocket. To I say to look at it right before when I ask it, but I, I don't actually think it's wrong to look at it during when you're praying your personal prayers. I, that's part of the prayer. Can, can you give some like, uh, practical ways to work on your communication with each other? Okay, practical ways to work on communication with each other. Uh, one, uh, we're just going to do a little bit. Really, this uh, it needs its own uh, workshop into itself. Um, but uh, the best thing to know about fostering communication is that it requires trust. So number one is making sure that you are protecting what's most important to the other person, because that's what trust is. Trust will be built when both parties know that each party protects what's most important to the other one. So that's one very important uh, way to start uh, relationship building and then communication building. And the other is to be paying very careful attention to what the other person is saying. Uh, so obvious things like, uh, you know, uh, that I'm guilty of, and I'm sure many people are guilty of, continuing to do something on your device uh, or, you know, write something or whatever while the other person is talking uh, can be seen as not listening to the other person. And there are many, many other things to go on from there. But we really should do a whole separate uh, workshop on, on that. Uh, but I would just finish it with saying, you have to ask yourself, do I really care about the other person or do I care about me uh, instead, you know, uh, on what I want from the other person? Uh, you have to really start from a place of caring genuinely about the other person. Yes, mommy. Hi, so I'm davening for certain Chayalim in Israel. I've given, been given names. 
I don't know exactly when to say it, before the Shemona Esrei, in the middle of the Shemona Esrei, before I start davening. I mean, okay. I do it before I start davening anyway, but... Yeah, so it, it, can I just ask a tangential but related question? Are these right. names of soldiers um, either friends or relatives of people that you know? One is, the others are not. They've yeah, just so, been given... Yeah, so I'm of the opinion that mentioning name, this is my own personal opinion, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I think this is actually correct, that saying the names of people that we don't know and that we don't have emotional connection to vis-a-vis uh, -vis other people is not particularly helpful or different than praying for the soldiers. Like, I don't really know that that helps anything because it doesn't add to my power of concentration that I'm saying random names of people that I don't know, unless somehow the names are inspiring you. Um, so that's just a separate point. I, I feel that way about Cholim also. Um, I really feel like if we have personal connection or connection to the people that have connection, then I feel like that makes a difference because we care about those people that care about that. Um, okay, but in terms of when to say it, uh, either Shema Cholinu is perfect uh, before Kiyata Shemea or... Um, either before or after the second Yihiyuluratzon. So right before Osa Shalom, there's a Yihiyuluratzon over there. Some people would say after the Yihiyuluratzon, maybe before the Yihiyuluratzon, either way. Okay, but I do feel that the soldiers that I've been davening for for a couple of months, I, I do feel that they're like sons in a way because I've been okay. davening for them for so long. Yeah. Okay. It's not a lot, okay. it's just a few. Yeah, okay. So, so fine. So good. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I just don't know that it's that or it's the general, but either way. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Mommy. Uh, reminder that my father is saying share in a few minutes, so please zoom on over to that. Anybody else with a question or comment? Okay. It's been wonderful, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi. Have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you all. When you were saying